This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Mila Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been a fan of Justin Torres's for, I don't know, I went, I think we met in like 2011 or something. It was yeah, a very long yeah. time ago. It was before We the Animals had come out officially, yeah. and uh, I am wild for this tiny little book with the three brothers and that beautiful, beautiful first-person plural narration. And you're back. You are so back with a beautiful, gorgeous, amazing, complicated, wild, gorgeous thing called Blackouts. But as I was saying to you before we hit record, I had a moment when I started reading Blackouts, and I've, I've read it twice now because your editor sent me a manuscript a really long time ago. And then uh, I was reading it, prepping for the show. And I had a moment early on as we're just walking into the palace. We're with our unnamed narrator. We haven't quite met Juan yet, but we know he exists and he's not in a good space. And I thought, huh. It felt like this sort of 1950s, a little bit, you know, like a little bit of that Michael Cunningham opening to the hours a little bit John Fonte, and I may have layered in the Fonte because I know you live in Los Angeles these days, but I really felt like we had stepped back mm -hmm. in time. And then, of course, like I, I think it's very early on. There are a couple of time markers where you're like, oh, I'm actually in the 90s at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love what you do with time. I love what you do with language. I also know that this was maybe not the first start to your second novel. <laughs> There was that yeah. story of the laptop pre-cloud. But I want to talk about the language and I want to talk about the opening sure. of blackouts yeah. before we go too deep into things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that I'm really glad you had that response. Uh, I wanted I want it to feel like a bit of a time machine uh, because it's taking like the, the opening is taking you somewhere that is kind of outside of time right like like the palace is just this place in the desert i wanted it to feel like like stepping off the world like the narrator is just like leaving life and stepping off the world and going and 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 actually trying to visit the past and so the fact that it feels like that like i i i love that i think um especially the very opening pages are are like very much mirroring pedro paramo uh, by Juan Rufo. and and again it's about this this journey and you're like is this a real journey is this like what, what what's happening here yeah i wanted to i wanted to invoke this kind of this sense of we're going somewhere where time functions differently and not to have the kind of hyper contemporary sense of the 90s you know yeah i really i needed to sort of step away and be much like you did with we the animals which did have a contemporary setting and i was very aware of it although there were a couple of old reviews that were like, well, there are no cell phones and there's no internet, so it must be like 1949. And I'm like, no, this is what poverty looks like in America. Thank you very much. Dude, you don't have the internet when you can't buy food. Who had a computer in the 90s? <laughs> I, I just like, I, and, and I say this as a person who walks around with two phones because I like to keep things separate, but mm -hmm. sometimes the world is just the world. And I do, I love having a nameless narrator. I really like this kid. He is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I really like Juan. And they're sort of the anchors, right? Like, let's let's call them the anchors. I mean, you obviously introduced many, many other people, but Yeah. It is largely a dialogue between it Juan. really, yeah, it really is. And and you use this device of having our narrator tell Juan the story that he's kind of looking to hear, but kind of not, by pretending he's narrating a film. Mm -hmm. and the yeah. book is illustrated yeah and it's this sort of 3d kind of sensory explosion as it were i mean i love this i i just i love everything about this book but it's not necessarily what people might expect after reading we the animals right yeah yeah i mean <laughs> first of all that was the most important thing to me was to do something really really different i I loved what happened with the animals. I got so lucky, um, and it really like it, it. It's it's still taught in, in schools. I still get people coming up to me, and and it's it's wonderful. It's it's a very important book to a lot of people. It's hugely important to me, obviously. I love that. But for myself, I was like, I don't, 
I don't want to write anything similar. I want to, I want to really push and stretch and experiment and, and really do something incredibly different. And, and it took me a really long time to figure out what that was going to be. Uh, I think that the visual elements and the kind of textual stuff and these blackout erasure poems that are, you know, the kind of photocopies that are throughout the book, all of that stuff. I don't know. It, it, it felt like I was doing so much research for this book. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. I was just like coming across all this ephemera and all this random stuff. And, and I was struck by how, how like two things would be side by side that didn't seem to relate to each other in an archive. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have this, this kind of experience of juxtaposing all this stuff and right. creating a puzzle and, and a bit more of a challenge, I think, for the reader than, than We the Animals. That was something that I wanted to do. I was nervous. I was nervous. You know, the word challenge, it's like, it's, it's loaded. Sometimes people don't want to be challenged in, in that way. But I don't know. It seemed like I was going to, if I was going to, if I was going to write another book, which I wasn't sure I wanted to, but if I was going to do it, it had, it had, it really had to be something different in order for, for, for myself, you know what I mean? For like my own kind of artistic growth. I do want to drop a note that we're taping this after you've been longlisted for the National Book Award for Fiction <laughs> for Blackouts. And we don't yet have the shortlist and I am not jinxing anything. So I am moving along very, very quickly, very, very quickly. But I do want to toss that out there because uh, there might have been some yelling in the office when I saw the longlist. <laughs> I was quite pleased. It's very I nice. was shocked. And the... Okay. You you can be shocked. I was just pleasantly surprised in many, many ways. But, you know, you've talked about this in the past where you didn't know necessarily that you were writing a novel when you sat down to write We the Animals. And Mm. this is a period in your life where things are a little messy and you're doing lots of different things. And I think there was a stint dog walking, which I did not know until recently. Yeah. Yeah. dog walking. Okay. So there was a lot. There was a lot happening. Yeah. Yeah. You had dropped out of college, though. Mm -hmm. You end up going to Iowa. You end up getting a Stegner Fellowship. You are now a professor, an assistant professor, excuse me. I know. Associate. I just got tenure. Associate. Okay, tenure. great. Thank you. Congratulations on tenure. But you're a professor now. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the trajectory you would have seen Absolutely. for yourself when you sat down to scribble. Yeah. I mean, you didn't know you were yeah. writing a novel and having read We the Animals more than once, um, that blows my mind every time yeah. I think about yeah. it. And now we have blackouts and the way the two sit on this continuum. Yeah. There, there's, there is one piece of overlap that I am going to sort of bring up. There's a character, our nameless narrator. Yeah. He and Juan do meet when they're both institutionalized. Yeah. yeah that's and it. there's a tiny, you know, if you've read We the Animals, yeah. you know what I'm referring to. Absolutely. If you haven't, I'm not spoiling anything for you, I promise. <laughs> go back and enjoy it anyway. But was that something that was going to happen sort of as you were driving? Because you're very particular about how you write. Yeah. And I can't, I have a hard time believing you didn't know that that was going to be there somewhere in this new book. Yeah. You know what? I think that what happened was kind of like to go back to the trajectory, you know, that that you're laying out. I, yeah, I, my whole world was spun around by We the Animals. I was really like, really struggling in a lot of ways and you know, just like, also just a mess in my 20s, like living. It's okay, we're allowed to be messy in our 20s. Like, I just want to be really super clear about that. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Like it was, it's not an unusual path. No. But I did, but I, but but the the idea that I would be a novelist and then, and then go on to, yeah, to like go to Iowa and Stegner, like fellowship at Harvard or whatever. I mean, it was just, it was so outside of any kind of thing that I imagined for myself. And when it started to happen, I, you know, the next book that I was writing was about somebody who was a mess in their twenties and doing a lot of sex work. And that's the manuscript that, that got lost. I mean, there, there are vestigial bits of it in here because that's what I had like in an email somewhere, you know, or the cloud (laughs) existed or, or at least before I knew about the cloud. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that the kind of seed for a lot of blackouts is is like this person who's in their 20s who's kind of wandering through their own life and struggling in a lot of ways and dealing with precarity all kinds of precarity and and that person coming into contact again with somebody he met in the mental hospital 
when he was when he was a teenager. And so that, yeah, I think you can see a relationship between the young boy and we the animals, and he who's like it ends when he's a teenager, and then the young man in a young unnamed narrator in Black Eyes. Absolutely, I think there's you know there's a continuum there. It's like a persona. It's obviously very much similar. A lot of overlap with my own life. I've talked about that a million times. <laughs> yeah, I I just want to be clear that we're not talking about autofiction here. Like it is possible yes. yeah. to set some framework maybe or like to use a bad house building metaphor, like you set the studs, right? And you yeah. do the framing and then you move on and, and do whatever. But I, I just, there's always this kind of presumption and it seems to happen obviously, well, I think more with writers of color than some. And just this assumption, especially if there's complications, yeah. <laughs> life complications in the story, <laughs> where it's like, oh, well, that's you. And it's like, well, actually, I, I make things up for a living. This is what I do. I fake it. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And it's it's strange, the this this um idea that everybody's not doing that, right? Everybody's doing it to some degree. Yeah. You know, they're just taking from what you live, you have experiences mm-hmm. and then you turn them into fiction. That's how that's how the whole process works. Um, right. But yeah, I think that that this book, in particular, is also about somebody who's like trying to get outside of themselves. Right? Yeah. So whereas whereas with the animals, it's very almost claustrophobic, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's about, yeah. it's about a kid in a very intense family, and everything happens at home. And it's it's this book. It's like he's he wants to know about the world. He wants to know about the past. He goes out in search of Juan, because Juan is is he's representational to him of this connection to a lost past or a suppressed history or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, you and I have both been around for more than a minute, and one of the things that I think sometimes it's hard to put into context is, you know, certainly we're missing a generation of men and women because of the AIDS crisis. Like, we're literally missing a generation of artists and musicians and dancers and bankers and lawyers and doctors and all like. Yeah. It was catastrophic. Yeah. And so the idea that you've got this kid, right, who's leading his very messy life, who's turned to an elder. Yeah. I think that's really important. Like I have friends, you know, who were part of ACT UP in the early days and whatnot. And it's wild to hear some of those stories, right? Yeah. 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 But there yeah. aren't a lot of people left. Yeah. And I think that in queer lineages, like there's there's not this natural, like you have to seek out elders. Like you have to seek out this connection to other generations. It's quite possible to get cloistered with like you're in a bar with like 20 people who are within five years of you, you know? And 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 you have to make like an active investment in knowing both the people of, of you know the generations that have come before and knowing about, yes, that missing generation. I mean, that was that was enormous to me when I was growing up. I felt like I'm just, I'm, you know, I was like born in 1980. Like I came into the world at the same exact moment as, you know, AIDS came on the map. I think that everybody just above me, right, was so absolutely decimated by this. And of course, they didn't want to talk about it. It was, so, it was all like, you know, like as soon as the drugs came that started turning things around radically, people were ready to kind of move on in, in a big way. And it was so painful. And And then, of course, there's all this, missing there's just missing artifacts right there's missing culture there's missing books and paintings and everything that you're saying right like it's like it's just not it's not there and and so I've always been really interested in in kind of how things get passed down what are kind of what's the, what is the idea of queer inheritance right yeah and you're doing it in so many ways in this mm-hmm. book so many ways and then I got to the index as well at the back i mean do we technically call it a bibliography what do we call that yeah i mean i called it like blinkered endnotes because it's from the perspective of the character yeah it's really fun to read but also i think there's more actual fact in that section than some might suspect and there are a couple of phrases i want to poke you on because i know they're part of the research you did but they kind of made me a little itchy every time mm. I hit them. And one was variance, mm. where it made me bananas every time I saw it in the text. And we're going to come back to what you were referring to. And also um, Puerto Rican syndrome. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. That, dude. I know. Dude, I, 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 and I know you found them in the, re- but we need to, 
language matters, right? Language yeah. matters. And yes, yeah. we have stepped outside of sort of what we know is, as you said, you wanted us to step off the planet, right? But yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, those those terms are real medical terms and real medical journals. I mean, it's shocking that in the DSM for, you know, this this diagnostic and statistical manual that that all of the kind of psychiatrists in America refer to, that, that there was this diagnosis called Puerto Rican syndrome, which is just I mean, the, the, the idea of a culturally bound syndrome, it's it's a strange idea, right? And it, it's very it's very similar to like, you know, like the idea of hysteria, right? This this affliction that affects only a certain kind of people. It was also fascinating to see that the terms don't come from nowhere, right? That like there's a reference to something that's going on. And I think that, you know, it it's first discovered in 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 the military even though the people who are talking about it are not talking about the circumstances in which puerto ricans are sent off to combat right they're not talking about the rampant racism that they're encountering every day in that very institution and so it's like there's such blindness right what can all that can be seen is that these puerto ricans are having this kind of reaction to stress and we're going to call it Puerto Rican syndrome, right? Rather than anything else, right? And I think that the same thing with the term variance, you know, that was that was the more polite term than deviance, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, great. Like, the bar is really low, Justin. The bar is <laughs> really low when we're saying, well, variance yeah. is less offensive than deviance. But right. I mean, we we were barbarians. We didn't have the language. And yet, I mean, in the twenties and thirties, there was a queer culture. There was yeah, like, yeah, there was yeah. a lot of drag. There was a lot of just sort of, yeah. like, why are we pretending that suddenly all of these things were invented in like 1995? Like, that's just <laughs> not the case. I know. I know. I mean, I think that again, I, I, I think that this is part of ruptures, right. Okay. And, and a lack of a sense of continuity in history. Okay. Um, I think that there's a kind of forever present um or there can be right that this this sense of everything is is new and invented for the first time and if you actually look at what people were getting up to in the at, at the turn of the century in the 10s and 20s and 30s like they had really kind of radically queer ideas of how to organize themselves their relationship to the world their relationship to others and they don't re- they're they're kind of taxonomies of of queerness, right? Like the way that they identify don't really map, you know, onto what we, what we, the way that we identify nowadays. And so there's a lot like, but also it's fascinating. Like it's absolutely fascinating. And a lot of it gets lost. I think, I think you're absolutely right that that there's this kind of presentism that happens where we're just like, I mean, you've written a book about a book, right? Blackouts is a book about a book. And lost history, and who mm. gets to tell history? Mm. I mean, it's Juan and our unnamed narrator are certainly the heart of the book. I mean, they're the structure, they're the heart, they're every they they are. But there is also this sort of secondary story <laughs> about Jan Gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this yeah. book, and the credit that she does not receive for the work she does. And of course, I'm thinking back to sort of Kinsey and all of that. Yeah. work that came. So can we talk about the idea yeah. behind using that book as a device? Yeah, yeah. So so when that book came into my life, it was mm-hmm. just this strange, you know, it's just called Sex Variance, a study in homosexual patterns. And I was just like, what is this? And when was it originally published? Uh, it was published in 1941. And it's okay. about a study that took place in the 1930s. So it's, so the study kind of goes through the 30s and they finally published in 1941. And I was just like completely taken by the case studies because somebody took a lot of care in transcribing these case studies. Somebody was like, because there's so much pathology in that book, right? Like there's so much language that is just like demonizing and stigmatizing these people. It's medical language. But there's also like real care in getting down the vernacular, the different ways that people talked about their experience, like the kind of vocabulary they use. And I was just like, who did this? Like who, where? And so then I started researching, there was not a lot that I could find out about the origins of the study. 
but there were a couple of books which I which I reference in the, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. the notes of the book um, that were super helpful, and that's where I learned about Jan Gay, and I learned that oh, this was actually her idea. She was a lesbian. She was an activist. She had the idea of on her own. She had interviewed all of these women in various cities who you know all these all these lesbians and and she had taken down their case histories and she was going off of Magnus Hirschfeld's model. Um, which is the kind of Berlin free thinking kind of. And so she brought this study to somebody and they were like, this is a great idea. And now we're going to take all your research, take all of your contacts, have you recruit people to come in and participate in the study? Have you take down their testimonies? And then at some point in the study, they just took it all away from her. And they basically erased her from study entirely. She was furious with the end result. She was really, really angry with how pathological they made these, you know, and she had like, she invited a lot of these people to participate herself, you know, and a lot of, and some of them were like artists and very successful and very confident. And, and they were asked to recount things that in ways that felt dehumanizing to them. You know, they were like photographed, their genitals measured. I mean, it was, a lot. It was a lot of this kind of, you know, like re- very much inflected by the kind of eugenicist thinking of the times. Oh, and so when I learned that story, I was like, I want to, but I didn't want to write historical fiction. I was like, I want to, I want to talk about Jan Gay. I want to put her in here, but I don't want to write historical fiction. And so how do I get at that in some other way? Which you do. <laughs> I just want to be clear, you do. I love the way the images just pop up and some feel very, very immediate Mm -hmm. and some I kind of had to go back and think about again Mm -hmm. and others I was kind of like, all right, all right. Okay. I see where you're going with this. There's the blackout poetry certainly and whatnot, but obviously you're working on the text before images are being added. But this device that I mentioned at the top of the show, this idea that our narrator is telling the story to Juan Mm -hmm. by narrating a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, you know, it's a great device. Yeah. It is a really good device. It makes perfect sense for this kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it makes total yeah. sense for this kid. But when did you sort of commit to that idea? Because I wasn't expecting that from you. I was yeah. thinking, oh, there would be lots of literary references and maybe some poetry. But, and it works. It works yeah. so yeah. beautifully. But yeah. I wasn't expecting it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, I just take that from Puig, from, from Manuel Puig. Kiss of the Spider Woman. Um, it's like one of the most influential books that like I've ever read. I love, love, love that book. And you know, it's two men in a jail cell in Argentina, and one of them is there because he's queer, and the other's there because he's like a revolutionary, and they just talk. And Molina, the the queer one, tells these film plots, but he's but he's kind of just making them up as well. They're it's kind of a hodgepodge. And I just love that book. And so when I had the two of them in a room together mm-hmm. and I had, um, and I realized like, oh my God, like I've, I've, I've written this book where there are these two people you know, with very different life experiences and one of the, and they're trying to teach each other something, especially one is trying to tell the narrator and, and kind of draw him into this, a sense of the past and a sense yeah. of history. And it's like, well, how how are they going to do it if they're just like lying in the dark together? And I had written a short story a long time ago in which two lovers um, narrate because they're living somewhere without electricity and they narrate to each other in the dark. And and that was like part of the vestigial stuff that makes yeah. its way to black. Yeah. And and then I was like, oh, that's Puig. And then I was like, oh. And then it just it just kind of started started happening um i think also i had recently read this book by um jaime manrique which was called eminent mary Collins, which is about his experience meeting puig who is himself this figure in his in his life that you know what i mean that is like this literary figure that and i don't know i was i was really interested in in that kind of um exchange right in like not I didn't want to be too didactic, but I wanted somebody 
I, I wanted this kind of Socratic dialogue, right? Like I wanted somebody old and wise to be talking. And it's like, how do you make that dynamic? How do you, how do you, how do you make that come alive? And I landed on this kind of this device of movie plots. Legacy though, right? Like we were talking about this missing generation. We're talking about how you get erased from the work that you've done, right? Like Jan Gay, she gets taken out of this project that she created and it's handed over to a couple of dudes who are not as careful um certainly as she would have been but this idea of legacy right like Juan and his legacy what does it mean what is this kid actually pulling from him and in a way we're talking about found family Mm -hmm. right like we're talking about found family with Jan and her wife and their connections to other people like it just what works what doesn't yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler, but in the very beginning of the book, when they're in the mental hospital, you know, there's a flashback to, to when, like, that's how the book opens, that they're, they're, the narrator is just a teenager and he's been institutionalized. And Juan kind of comes and sits next to him and just watches over him and looks over him. And, and I think that there's something that happens when there's a kind of intimacy that can happen. They didn't know each other very long. They weren't, you know, they were in the same place for like two weeks, you know, but there's, when you're trapped, when you're basically imprisoned and the hours just stretch and stretch and stretch and you're under such pressure, there's an intimacy that can happen at a kind of super accelerated pace. And that's what happens. And they become family in that moment, right? There's something that they recognize in one another. And you know, the, the narrator's, you know, like, like, whatever, you know, half Puerto Rican, one was born in Puerto Rico, you know, like, there's, there's that kind of tribal connection that they have, but also, it's a recognition of queerness, it's also just, like, sensibility, like, a recognition of, of a certain kind of, I don't know, like, literary tenderness that, like, (laughs) can lapse over into depression very easily, Um, I think that, like, there's a lot that they, that they share in that moment that bonds them, that makes them, yeah, kind of chosen family. And that's why in this moment of crisis, the narrator seeks out Juan. It's also that difference between loneliness and being alone, right? Mm. And like when you find someone, even if it is that accelerated connection, right, that happens under, you know, extreme circumstances kind of thing. It's so clear that our narrator just is looking, it's not just solace, it's not comfort, it's just he's he's looking for home ultimately, I think, yeah. and knows that the only way he's going to find it is if he makes it himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't really rely, you know, Juan's story kind of makes it clear that you can't necessarily rely on the other people yeah. who may or may not continue to show. Like you just have to make a thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking so much about what you just said about loneliness and being alone. And I, yeah. I, I, I love that. And I think that, one of the things that Juan is doing, like this book is a lot about nothingness. It's a lot about nothingness and blacking out and erasure as a as something you know, that, that can be quite terrifying, but also that could be a protective gesture, right? Sometimes when we like lose time and stop recording memories or whatever, it's because what's happening is too much, right? <laughs> Brain's just like, no, I'm just <laughs> not going to remember this, right? It's just like, no way. And sometimes, like, you know, with the blackout poems, it can be a kind of way of trying to get rid of that pathological language, get rid of that overlay, right? Like, there's other ways in which the nothingness, the emptiness, th- those mm-hmm. gaps can be embraced. They're not, they're not just necessarily ruptures in a, in a negative sense. And as far as loneliness goes, I think that one is somebody who can very much be alone, right? I mean, he, he's very, he's just in this room, like, getting ready to die by himself with books like he's just reading and it's and it's enough right the companionship he needs he finds in a kind of literary way and i think the one one of the things he's teaching the narrator is not not to be so terrified of 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 his loneliness or his aloneness right not to right to like like you know to kind of you know, the, it's like I, I I do yoga, you know, and like the the goal is always like to get towards nothingness. Like that's what you're doing. <laughs> that's the end product of like a lot of Buddhist thought, right? Like it's like nothingness as as something to aspire to, right? To, to, to be comfortable with that nothingness. And so, 
Yeah, I think I think it is a lot about a lot about loneliness and our aversion to to kind of that the void and yeah, and how do we comfortable with that? There's another piece of the story too, though, which is shame. And, you know, we still, as a culture, right, we have this thing about shame and who shame gets applied to versus, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) the application, or let's say the applications of shame, right? And the idea that, you know, okay, occasionally I joke about shame is a tool like please get off your cell phone in a small enclosed space like i really do not need to hear you yelling on your phone like what is wrong with you may we never ever have you know the ability to make phone calls on a flight please 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 never let that happen no but shame is something obviously that gets transmitted in lots of different ways and it certainly appears throughout the original sex variant. I mean, you've hinted at it. I was thinking a lot about the difference between shame and stigma as well when I was writing this. So there's this in the back of the book, like an alternative epigraph, which is from Irving Goffman, which is about, which is all about stigma, right? And it's about how, I mean, stigma is like, like shame is one of those things that you feel, right? Like you, like somebody shames you and you feel ashamed inside right like it's it's like and sometimes we can feel shame about things so like anybody else would be like why are you ashamed of that like it's not like don't worry about it and you're like laying about at night anxious you can't stop thinking about some stupid thing you said at a party you know and it's like there's that kind of shame and then there's like stigma which is just like you were born into this world with like this body this sexuality this and it's just like you are part of a stigmatized group and that is something that you can't it's, you can't rectify it within yourself, right? Something that has been placed upon you. And I think that one of the things that the book is interested in and that Juan is trying to encourage narrators to do is to be like interested in stigma, right? Like where does it come from? Like what right? Like what it, what were people saying about queers in the 1930s? What were people saying about Puerto Ricans in the 1950s? What you know, like like where where's the kind of institutional official rhetoric coming from that produces this stigma right Juan strikes me as a really puckish kind of character and i realize we're talking about a character who's a man who's dying mm-hmm. and yet just sort of the way he needles our narrator in that way that your like grandparents do right <laughs> like oh you think you know everything oh you really think you know everything <laughs> right like Uh, or you look at your parents and you're like oh right you were people before you had children (laughs) like how do i process that i don't want to process i do not want to know thank you i don't want to know anything but there is sort of this puckish sensibility to him Mm -hmm. that i really appreciate and and he's just sort of gently and very lovingly trying to get our narrator to maybe open his eyes a little bit yeah and to laugh at himself yeah and and, i mean Kid's not there yet, but he's getting there. There's so many pieces that you pull into the story too. There's the children's book. There's which I'm sorry, the drunken animals. It's very funny. There's a lot of charm in this book. There's a lot of charm. There's a lot of sort of love and charm and heart and all of the things that you hope to have. But you're doing a balancing act, right? Which is obviously, as the writer, it's your job. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> But I also know that you're picky about sentences. I know that I've known this for years that it's not rewriting for you. Like you really will sit there and stare at a blank page until you get the thing that you want. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a a really slow, slow, slow Mm -hmm. way to move forward. And I think that one of the reasons that this book is so dialogue heavy is because I think that because I, because I like work so slowly sentence by sentence, I can kind of get trapped in a, in a self-seriousness as I'm composing, right? Because it's like, it's not free enough. It's not loose enough. And so the dialogue, it was really helpful to have Juan, who is able to tease, who really laughs at himself and, and really pokes at the narrator and, get, and tries to get him out of this kind of self-seriousness. Even though Juan also wants to teach him things about the world, he, he also wants to teach him how to be in the world a little bit. Right? Like, how to like not think about himself quite so much and think about others a little bit more and all of that stuff. And it was really freeing for me on a sentence level because dialogue, 
there's a kind of call and response, right? There's 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 like it really pulls you to the next sentence, and 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 I obsess so so much on on each sentence unit that to have these tiny little units going quickly was like freeing for me. I was like stepping on the gas a little bit. Yeah, I think those two things are related. When did you start this version of novel number two, as I referred? Because you know, obviously there was that last one that was lost, but I don't know how far along you were in that. And it sounds like that entire thing, you just literally let it, you lost the thing, you let it go and start it. So when did you start physically writing this one? This sex variance book came into my life right before We the Animals came out. So I was working at a used bookstore, like a new and used bookstore in Texas. It doesn't exist anymore, but, and somebody dropped off this box of books. And so I knew that I wanted to write about it since like 2010, basically. And I would just carry, they're huge books, and I would carry them around me everywhere. And I would just, but I didn't know how or why. And I just didn't honestly have the stability in my life to to like do the research, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, but I always knew that it was something I wanted to write about. So they're kind of like parallel tracks, right? And then I had the kind of, more immediate stuff that were these kind of stories about a sex worker that I was writing more quickly and they were kind of more in line with what We, we the Animals was. Uh, and I, but I was trying to change the way that I write because I was just like, I don't want to, you know, I just, it's like you don't a, need to be that guy who keeps coming back. I yeah. love, I do. I, the first person plural, I love that voice. I also love a really close second, like that. When you is deployed well, yeah. Oh man, mm-hmm. like how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. That Muslim Haman. There is a lot of really fantastic writing, but you don't need to be the guy who writes every novel the same way. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. When I lost this manuscript, it was in a way it was freeing. I lose everything all the time anyway, so like I've become very good at just being like, well, that's gone forever but also I was like okay I can kind of merge these projects and I would say I was writing this for a very long time but not in a very focused way I was like I was was learning how to be a teacher a professor I mean I was just living life like I had jumped class in this dramatic way and I was just like feeling whiplash I was like what like this what is life who am I and so it was really COVID that allowed me to sit down and be like, okay, I'm finishing this. And this is, this is it. Like, I'm, it's, this is, this is the time I'm going to get it done. And so I had a lot of the pieces and fragments that were floating around get, get pulled together and stitched together during COVID. Yeah. 2023 has been a pretty good year for books, but it's been particularly good for me because I get a new novel from you <laughs> and a new novel from Ayanna Mathis. Yeah, and both of you, you know, for your own reasons, you took your time. That's okay. I can be patient, <laughs> but it's been a really, really good fall. And I didn't know you convinced her to apply to Iowa <laughs> that you got into yeah. Iowa, and you were like, "You have to come with me." Um, yeah, and I really love this idea. And I'm just wondering how much of each other's work do you get to see? And I should have asked her this question too, but you know, we were galloping all over the place too, and I just figured I would catch up with you and get some of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, at that time, mm-hmm. we were, like, so close. We were, we were just, like, super duper, super duper close friends. And, yeah, and I was, like, I'm going to Iowa. You're coming with me. Like, <laughs> and I just, she, I really love that. <laughs> and she came and applied while, yeah. like, already living in Iowa City with me. And then, of course, she, like, went on to be a faculty member. Because uh, <laughs> she's just incredibly talented and incredibly charming and smart and she's just she's a real deal and so at that point we were, I mean, we read everything i mean we were living right. together. okay yeah. i mean like every like you know like sentence by sentence like we were just like like we were just together all the time always reading right. everything and then i think after i went after i graduated and after our books came out it was you know like i got this job in la and i, I moved to the west coast and so now I mean, I've, I love, I love, 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 love the book, but I read it in galley form. I mean, yeah, I, okay. I, I didn't see it before the galley form. And the same thing, you know, we sent each other galleys as soon as we had them. But I think that 
Yeah, and also I think it's probably like second book stuff. We both took a really long time, you know. Like, I'm just going to enjoy the idea of the two of you just sitting in a corner somewhere working on stuff together. That you know, I mean, okay, maybe I'm nostalgic for something that doesn't actually you know impact my life. But when I think that we got We the Animals and the Twelve Tribes of Hattie, (laughs) I'm pretty happy as a reader. And now we have blackouts and the unsettled. Yeah, and the other one's so good. Yeah. yeah, but you've been teaching for like 10 years, right? Yeah, at least, but at UCLA, I think eight years, but I was teaching before that. Yeah, ever since Sweet Animals came out, yeah. What's it like being the adult in the room? <laughs> and you know why I'm asking you this question. I, I mean, like, I just, I love the idea that you are where you are and that all of these things happened and you were able to turn them into something yeah that so many younger people are actually going to be able to benefit like very directly from yeah it's wild it's wild I mean I have a I have like another kind of yeah persona that I step into and you know I, I think like in this format you know it's like talking to some like you know somebody that I really like but I haven't talked to in a long time I'm very just myself and loose and whatever when I teach I think I'm very much like right all right because also they're so young they're so young oh. Babies. Years, Babies. Babies. <laughs> and so I so I do kind of do this authoritative thing. I mean, not right. like in a in a nasty way, but in a right. I step into the role, right? But it is, I always feel like slightly like I'm watching myself, like doing yeah. professor drag, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like that's me, but it's also not really me, you know. Um, but you do it for them, makes them right, right. as well, right? Yeah, I love that idea of you do it for them. What are you teaching now? Like, who are you teaching, I should ask, actually? Yeah, I mean, luckily I'm on sabbatical at the moment for, like, do book tour stuff. At UCLA, I teach a lot of creative writing courses, and then I teach also, like, Latinx literature courses and queer lit courses. I, like, always teach Gil Quadros, this book, um, City of God, which I just absolutely love. It's hugely important to me. And he has a new book coming out next year of uncollected writings because you know, he, he died at like 34 with AIDS and so I'm really excited about that I wrote a forward to that I'm like pushing that I'm talking about it wherever I'm okay <laughs> I think it's like a, I think it's an important book for the culture so like in a course like that I'll teach um and Munoz I'll teach like Angie Cruz I'll teach if I'm doing something very contemporary like I've taught a classical Latinx now and I taught this like reading Indiana book like other, sometimes I'm teaching more historical stuff. I'll yeah. teach John Ritchie. And I love it. I love coming up with new syllabi mm-hmm. and pushing myself. Like, it's a great way to be, to be like, here's a list of books I've been meaning to read. And this is going to force me to, to engage with them in a really deep way. So It also sounds to me like you are reading for voice first and mm-hmm. language comes second. I mean, not in your own work. Language comes first, obviously. But that's what it sounds like to me. just the names you rattled off. I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It all starts with voice. Or like even Puig yeah. and Kiss of the Spider Woman. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's true. You know, that's that's a really good point. I think that especially when I'm thinking about what to teach as well, right? Because you can get you can get students who don't see themselves as readers to really fall in love with if voice reaches out and grabs them right if something really subtle is happening on 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 a kind of language level you can get them there but it can be more difficult to 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 kind of make them fall in love with it but the voice is just jumping off the page then that's usually what makes them think about what's happening on another level as well you know and part of what I'm excited about with Blackouts, beyond the fact that I got a really great read out of it, is all of the young people whose brains are going to blow up <laughs> this book. I'm so excited. Like, I mean, listen, our peer group, like, we're ready for this book. We want this but Like, you know, it's going to fill in some gaps, whatever. But like, oh, man, some 20-year-old somewhere, his, <laughs> his or her head is going to explode yeah. in the best possible way. Like, here you are on the page in a way that you haven't seen before it's a really sticky voice, right? Like, even though our narrator doesn't have any really sticky voice, like Juan is kind of the grown-up you want to hang out with, right? Like, if you're our narrator, I totally get why Juan is the person he's gravitated towards without a doubt. And and to be able to face someone as they are actively dying, 
Yeah. When yeah. you're a young person. I mean, that's a trip. Yeah. It's a really strange experience to think about for for 200, whatever, 300 pages. <laughs> like, like for me. It's to, not to, that. To, wait, constantly. it's not even 300 pages. What are you talking about? Hold on. Yeah, no. What is it? I'm trying to look at the final. The oh, final okay. If is... you if you go through the illustration credits, you get to 300 pages, but <laughs> the actual yeah. writing of the thing is 295. And and a lot of those are pictures. A lot of those are, are pictures. It's a short. It's a it's a relatively short book. It's, it is it's a relatively short animals. book. But did you get to read Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes? Which I haven't read it yet. I I have okay. it, but I haven't read it well, yet. Well, you show a publisher. Just stylistically, she does some similar things to what you're doing yeah. with text on the page. Yeah. I mean, there's actually one of her, one of her notes is I think copy from a post-it. Yeah. And I say this ad- with total admiration because I am the queen of post-it notes. Like I have a, <laughs> I have a giant screen on my desk, a computer screen that I actually don't use. It it really just holds post-it <laughs> with my <laughs> taping schedule on it. <laughs> I live and die by post-it notes. I love the idea of using Oh, it's, it's like, I, because I have a handball. very large laptop. So it's not like I need the second screen. Like I'm not one of those people who has to spend all my time with spreadsheets. And obviously yeah. if you need a second screen. I'm like, no, post-it note holder. <laughs> Absolute post-it note. <laughs> as long as I can see who I'm taping with and what day. I'm really excited to read that book. We, we I think we have shared editor as well. I think Jenna, I think, I, Jenna think you, I think you do well. share an editor. I haven't read it yet because it, you know, it's, it, you know how it is, right? I do. Of a, of a book coming together. It's like, there's the stack is enormous of things that, that came out right when I was finishing this one. Yeah. yeah. We have, we're lucky that, I mean, I laugh about it all the time because I'm producing sort of three hours, sometimes more of original audio a week. And I'm like, yes, my reading is slightly prescribed in a way it was not previously. <laughs> but then you slide stuff in and you're like, how quickly can I read this? <laughs> and luckily for me, I do read, like, I, I have a superpower. I read very quickly and I can retain. But sometimes yeah. you're just like, how am I going? Okay. Have you read anything lately that you love? Even though you just said, I know all of this came out when I was, but. Yeah. I mean, I can just show, I'm just like thinking of books on my desk. There's, there's. Oh, I love, oh, ones, love. Which like, I'm very late. To, like, this is a thing, right? It won the National Book Award. But it was only last year. It's not like it was 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I was been excited about since, what else is on my desk? I'm really excited about this, which is. Um, oh, touching the art. Okay, that one is not on my uh, radar. Uh, Punks is the is the poetry collection that we were just raving about. Oh, yeah, it, just, it just occurred to me. I was like, oh, I should say the title because we're looking at the screen. <laughs> this I finished a while ago, but it's still on my desk because I'm still thinking about it. I try to read a lot of stuff in translation. It kind of gets me to to new kind of horizons with language and structure. I think that it's just it's really interesting to 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 see what's happening, like what you know what actually makes it. Yeah. into the US market, what actually gets translated because it's got to have done something really incredibly special because it's so hard for those books to even get translated. Well, what gets translated and how? You know when you're reading something and you're just like, oh, I think this is not what it was intended to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not saying, I am not claiming to be multilingual in ways where I could, you know, do yeah. crazy things on the page. All I'm saying is I think as a reader, you get to a point where you know something's off. Yeah, yeah. And so to have a good translation and to have something where you're like, uh, like, yeah. um, you know that novel yeah. Earthlings? The Sayaka Murata? No. All right, I'm going to get a copy to Genesis. You can get a copy. Yeah, send it to it's me, tricky. please. <laughs> it yeah. Is, yeah. But it's one of those books where I'm like, I can feel the Japanese-ness of it Yeah. in a way that, you know, if someone handed it to me in Japanese, I would be like, Hi, thanks so much. <laughs> like <I got> nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, I think the translation, like it's it's a friend of mine does translation work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Her name her name is um Mariam Romani, and she translated this book called Um In Case of Emergency by this Iranian writer that's like it's like super queer and it's about it's about like an earthquake and and this and this and this person who's like dressing cross-gender so that can traverse the city without getting harassed kind of thing you know it's like it's really it's fascinating amazing book and and i had so many conversations with her about translation and translating culture at the same time that you're translating 
the actual words and language and meaning and rhythm, right? You also have to translate culture. Like you, you have to, and, and that is so it's, hard, it's so hard it's and so, so hard. complicated. And the more people who are studying translation and doing translation, like the better off our literature is going to be in general, mm-hmm. I think. And so I'm always, I'm always trying to, I mean, it's funny because like, I mean, I'm in an English department. <laughs> I'm not in a conflict department, but I'm always trying to to push and and um, recommend. I mean, there are just some people who are amazing translators who are like, you know, I'll read everything that they write that they translate. Yeah. I also just think our art really should reflect who yeah. we are, and like, we shouldn't be so provincial. And sometimes it pays off in wonderful ways, and sometimes I'm just like, well, I guess. I'm not going to finish that, but like, so what's the worst thing that happened? I didn't finish a book. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm like, I'm totally okay with that. Like, it's fine. I don't have to finish every book. But I do, I mean, I read because I want to see what else is out there. Like yeah. our narrator, right? Who wants to know what else is out there. Yeah. 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 And I cannot wait. I'm so excited for Blackouts to be published. Yeah. I'm so excited. And I'm just going to sit quietly while we wait for the shortlist. From the lovely folks at the National Book Award, who also, you know, if you're starting on literature and translation, actually, they've started a prize. And it's a really good way to check out what's happening, like, right now in literature and translation. They've been picking some really interesting, smart stuff. Totally. I mean, it's so funny, because when I saw the long list for the translator, I I went to Instagram and I was like, I was like, does anybody want to start a a book club where we just read the long list? Of, of translated literature with me because I was so excited and I had no anticipation of being shortlisted or being longlisted yeah, yeah, yeah. myself and then, and then that happened and now I'm like well, actually I'm going to read all of the other books on longlist that I haven't read yet because I haven't well there's them. you know so, I just I'm really hoping I get to see you in New York in November <laughs> Justin Torres thank you so much for giving yeah. me all this time and <laughs> letting me wander all around blackouts with you because I really this book is it's really special it's really special it's really great it's exactly the kind of thing we need in this moment so thank you thank you and thank you for doing this it's like so important to have people who are so smart about books talking about books in the culture so I really appreciate it I really yeah it's been great thank you for listening poured over is a Barnes and Noble production To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.